I just got a toilet last March. Underneath my cabinet. There's a big hole underneath that cabinet, underneath there. You know, you can't even go nowhere around here and get a house. That they holler if you got bad credit, pay your credit off and come back. And they got apartments. They pick who they want. These are the voices of Mississippi. And their voices are just as valid as some whiny Upper East Side family with limitless resources to cure comparatively trivial afflictions. But aren't there bigger stories out there to capture our attention? Some of the violence that takes place in poor black neighborhoods around the country uh, is born out of uh, a very violent past in this country. In the aftermath of Trayvon Martin, the questions we have to ask ourselves are why racism continues to flourish and why so many young black men continue to die. Why are we doomed to repeat a savage cycle in which we surrender our nation to the worst disgraces of American history? Jesmyn Ward's new memoir, Men We Reaped, tries to answer this dilemma by looking into how five needless deaths, including that of her own brother, affected and informed her own life. It's a deeply affecting book, which points out how the deck is stacked against you if you're a young African-American living in Mississippi. But it also reveals how stories allow us to live and to understand. And maybe, if we focus our attention into how other people live, we may just come up with a new way of telling stories that allows us to lob some righteous stones at the incompetent political forces that would prefer to shut down our government that address our deepest needs and our greatest ills. My name is Edward Champion, and this is The Bat Segundo Show. I discussed much of these issues with Jesmyn Ward during a recent visit she made to New York City. Okay, so I'm here with Jesmyn Ward and her lovely daughter... Noemi. Noemi, I'm Uh sorry, uh, who is most recently the author of Mad We Reaped. I I love having authors and their babies here. (laughs) Jesmyn, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing fine. So, um... We don't have that much time. Thank you very much for squeezing me into your schedule. But I wanted to first of all start off with the notion of home, okay. which is a word that crops up numerous times within this book. You describe while you were in Stanford how other people went to Alaska and Cape Cod and you would always go to Mississippi. And you wonder during the course of the book if your father actually felt the same way that he had to go to Mississippi. You've got a territory here that is filled with terrible poverty, terrible racism, and it's also, however, the home of the Delta Blues, Big Crit, and all that. So what is it about Mississippi that you think keeps you and your family and your friends and your neighbors coming back? Well, I think that, um, you know, that that um, that so far in, in my work that, you know, Mississippi um, and home, that's been my center, right? That's what I write about. Yeah. And so I think that that keeps, that keeps drawing me back. Um, I know, you know, I have a really large extended family. Um, in, in, in just, if I count just like a fourth of that family, there are over 200 of us. Yeah. Um, so, um, so I have a really large extended family, and that draws me back too. Um, and then also, I think that because a lot of the families in my town are related to each other, um, and they're all really large, that it creates this really tight-knit community. So all of that together, I think, draws me back. And, you know, Mississippi is, um, I think, you know, it's contradictions make it a place that, um, you know, that that fosters great art, I think, yeah. you know. And so 
Um, and so, you know, in that way, I think it's it's good for me to return to that place and to stay familiar with that place. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was talking about this with Kiese Lehman, who appeared on this show. We, we got into it really <laughs> quite a bit. But we were yeah. talking about this problem of cultural engagement where, uh, you know, people don't realize that culture should serve more than just background music. It should actually, you have to pay attention to the sweat and the tears and all of the years of effort that went into making that art. And, and I wonder, you know, why you think Mississippi sometimes uh, doesn't get that kind of uh, attentiveness that I, I believe it's due. Like people don't really want to delve into the Delta Blues or, or, or Big Crit, which I've really become a big fan oh, of. Oh, I love yeah, him. Yeah, I love yeah. him. Yeah, I love him. I would love to meet him one day. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't know. I think... Um, you know, I think that we're sort of painted with a broad brush in that, pe- in that because, you know, there's those statistics that I cite in my That's book right, where, yeah. you know, we're, we're dead last. Every yeah. time you count us in any way or count the states in any way, we're dead last. And so I think that, you know, that those numbers um, make us easier to, uh, you know, to, to sort of dis- disregard, I yeah. guess, um, in, 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 in stereotype in certain ways. And I think that just makes it hard for people to engage um, with us, you know. But do you think it's more statistics versus stories? I was curious about this. I mean, there's also the statistic about mental health that Mm -hmm. you bring up. I mean, a number of things. I mean, do we need to have stories in order to get people to actually care and understand that, well, Mississippi deserves better than being dead last? No, yeah, I definitely think that that's the case. And that's why most of the book, you know, there are only two places where numbers appear in my book. And that's because, you know, I'm not that kind of writer. Um, and, um, and, And I'm sort of more interested in telling stories, right? Right? And so that's part of what I wanted to accomplish in the book is that I wanted to tell these stories and to make, you know, the people that I'm writing about, the characters that I'm writing about as well developed and as human as I possibly can so that people will care about, you know, care about the people that they encounter, care about the characters and, um, and perhaps come to that conclusion, right? That, you know, that our stories are worth being told and that Mississippi shouldn't be dead last. And, and uh, Noemi has also yes, has some 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 contributions to yes, this. What do you think? Yes, she's chiming in. <laughs> she's chiming. Yeah, she's she's uh, she's clapping her hands for Mississippi. Yes, yeah, she is. <laughs> she is. So you mentioned coming across the phrase double consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you then consider this in relation to your mother, yeah. who you start to see as as a black cleaning woman, mm-hmm. uh, and the phrase allows you to see her in this context mm-hmm. and. This, as you say, allows you to become aware of your eventual ascent into another class. When I was reading this book, there were many phrases that just struck me, that just caused me to kind of have emotional associations like this. I think of things like widow at my age or addled on adrenaline. Mm -hmm. You know, this suggests that you possibly had similar emotional associations to get at these truths of what it is to grow up in rural Mississippi. So how does language, I wonder help you arrive at these questions of identity. I mean, do you often feel that you're more at the receiving end of a phrase or, or a piece of language more than actually mastering it sometimes? Or? Yes, I do. I mean, I, I feel like a lot of what I of what I do when I'm writing comes from, um, you know, a lot of it is intuitive. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that that intuition is fed by everything that I've read, you know, and all the writing that I've done before, you know, whatever I'm writing at that moment. And so, so yes, I mean, these things do, they, 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 they tend to, uh, yeah, they tend, they tend to, um, to, to come to me, um, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, I use what comes and then sometimes, 
you know, I, I, I know that sometimes, you know, that I, that I do, I do need an editor, yeah. you know, because some of it, you know, is informed by things that I've heard before, cliche and stuff like that. So, so yeah, you know, the South is an interesting place. I don't know if we talked about this last time, but, um, but I've encountered this, you know, I've encountered different people. I've talked with different people about the way that um, that language is used in the South and how it's 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 um. It's used in a very particular way there, and often, um, you know, the you know the the words that we'll use for something are very descriptive versus you know in other places. So the the example that always comes to my head, right, is that in where I'm from, we call soda or pop, you know, That's we right. call it cold drink, you know, any kind of co- any kind of you know Coke or Sprite or anything. We everything is cold drink. Do you want yeah. cold drink? Yeah. And so there's a descriptive quality to something like that. Cold drink, oddly enough, is the name of Kiesi Lehman's uh, blog as oh, well. Oh, yeah, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> well, we'll give uh, we'll give her like we'll give her like two more warnings. And then okay. If need be, we'll, it's okay. okay. But I do like the idea of the baby in the back. Okay. Um, so one of the takeaways from your memoir is that the world we live in is pre-rigged against the lives of the poor and the black. In the case of CJ, yes. uh, one of the five men you describe in this book, uh, it could be a railroad gate yeah. that some cash-strapped community couldn't actually erect or yeah. install. Uh, in the case of Demond, uh, it could be some figure coming out of the woods with a gun. Um, at one point, you have CJ telling Shireen in this book, we can hustle, make money, live good, live and for me, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about in terms of language, that shift from live good to live really has me wondering, well, how you or anyone can have the hope and the faith to just live in this constant environment of loss and how language itself, well, you almost have to settle for live as opposed to live good. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, I, um, you know, during the, during the years that I write about, I, you know, I got to a point where I, um, where I had um you know lost a, a lot i think of the of the early optimism that i had in life and a lot and really i'd i'd lost the sense of hope you know because i you know i was lost my brother first and then losing and then it was you know lost my cousin and then losing all my friends and um and, you know there's something like about a situation uh, enduring that or living through that where you do um you know where you get to this point where you um you know, where you become more fatalistic, right? Where you, um, and, and nihilistic. It's, um, and, and I think that, you know, that some of that is, you know, reflected in how we spoke to each other and the ways that we talked to each other. And, and of course, in our behavior, right? Yeah. Because we were really self-destructive during that, during that time. I mean, and I think it expresses itself most perfectly or expressed itself most perfectly with CJ, who, you know, at one point, and I, you know, write about it in the book, but where he, he become convinced that he would die young. He just knew, like, yeah. it's like he couldn't even envision a future for himself, you know? I mean, beyond those few conversations that he had with, you know, with my sister. Uh, but beyond that, you know, where it's like he had flashes of hope then, but beyond that, with everyone else, whenever he would talk about his future, he would always say, I'm not gonna be here long. You know, I'm not gonna live, live, live here long. And that, you know, I mean, declarations like that reflect a certain, um, you know, reflect that, you know, that mindset, of course, which is a result of, you know, that constant, like, battery, right, of, 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 of you know, people dying young, people, you know, being poor and, and, and being discriminated against and, you know, all, the, all that, you know, it, 
all that leads to that sort of mindset and that yeah. sort of expression. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, how do you summon up hope? Or is the best way to dwell on hope... <laughs> Should we, uh... Hey, you yeah. want to go walk with Michelle? Yeah, yeah. I'll go with Michelle. Yeah. You were very, very subtle. You were. You were. <laughs> Doing so well there for a while. <laughs> Come on, love. Here you go. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Wonderful daughter. Okay. Um, so, how do you actually summon up hope when you're living in this kind of impoverished, stripped, deck-stacked-against-you world? Or is the hope something you find later by dwelling upon it through memoir, uh, by dwelling even through grief, mm -hmm. finding that hope? Is, is, is that really kind of one of the ways that uh, you were able to make sense of all this? Look, uh, All the shifting perspectives and all that? Uh, I think, you know, that in some ways I was able to find it through, um, th through coming to an understanding of, um, of my grief, right? So, so, you know, so that I... You know, because through all that, through all that, you know, sort of sense of loss and, and pain that I felt, I was still, you know, that pain meant that my brother lived, you know, and and that I and that I love him and that he loved me. And so, th there's something about the pain that also, that also means that that the one that you love is still very close to you. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that maybe that does um, give me some sense of hope because it because that grief constantly recalls him to me. But I also think that, um, you know, that uh, that, um, you know, and I write a little about it a little bit at the end of the book, but that that I think in my community that it seems like, um, you know, that that, that that this idea of family is very important, you know, and that children are very important and that and that that, too, I think, gives um gives people that, that sense of hope. I know, I mean, even though at the same time, like I, I understand um, and, and also acknowledge that there's that, you know, there's that fear, right? That, um, that, that all the tragedy that befell you in your life will befall, you know, will, be, will, will you know, will visit your, will visit your, ch your children or will visit, you know, the generations that are, that are coming up behind your own generation. But, but I think that, you know, there's, that there's a, that there's an uneasy, you know, balance between the two, right? At the same time that you fear, um, that you also, you know, have some hope that um, that, that that the next generation will, will not um, will not have to, you know, struggle and um, and endure the things that the previous generation did. Well, the sense I also get from your book and in your way of dwelling upon these memories is that family itself becomes far more elastic among such a community, like family stretches across this incredible canvas of community so that the two notions, mm -hmm. family and community, are almost indistinguishable. Yeah. And, you know, you said at the beginning, oh, I've got a family of 200. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, what what is your notion of family? Do you think that that actually offers you more of a coping mechanism mm -hmm. to deal with some of the injustices of being dead last? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, how, how has that actually come into play, that sense of community? I think that it does. I mean, you know, I said there are over 200, and that's just with, that's just counting my mother's yeah. mother, like my, mother, my mother's mother, my grandmother, her sisters and their kids, right? So, so if I count all the other members of my extended family, I mean, it seems like a, a lot of those extended families are related to each other in the community, so that, 
So that community really is this large, you know, it does become this large extended family. Um, and so there's that really a sense of, of belonging and a sense of, of history that you grew up with in a place like that. Um, and, and then also I think that, you know, in more practical ways that community becomes family because when my mother, um, you know, when she found herself in her, you know, 20s with four kids to take care of, right, and, you know, after my father left, um, you know, she, she didn't, definitely didn't do it alone. You know, my, my, my you know, my, my mom's mom's family definitely stepped in and, um, you know, and, and, and um, you know, and functioned as a, you know, as, as a, you know, and different people in the community really stepped in. Um, and, and, and really helped in, in, in many different ways. And then, you know, my mother sort of paid it forward. And, you know, there are times when we were living in Gulfport that I remember that, um, I don't know if I wrote about it in the book, but, um, but our sort of distant cousins live, also lived in that neighborhood. And there were many a times when, you know, when my distant cousin's mother would call my mom and say, we don't have any food in the house, you know, like, can you bring, over it, bring something? Can you, is there something that you can spare? And my mother would like, you know, take things out of her cabinets and take things out of the refrigerator and like bring me, you know, bring meals, you know, over to my, um, you know, over to our relatives. So, so yeah, so I think that family and community where I'm from it is really um, elastic and interchangeable. You know, these things are become one. I sure. Guess. Well, the other thing too, I mean, we talked last time about salvage the bones and the sort of striking inflexible musculature of daddy in that book. And I think of how you write about your father in this book, about how you get into his, his violence, mm-hmm. uh, struggling from job to job, his philandering, uh, all sorts of things. And, and I'm wondering, um, you know, if uh, there was possibly sort of a, a need to write about him in memoir form that just fiction could not possibly uh, get at that truth, even though it got at it a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if, uh, if, if, um, if trying to examine that that uh, very complicated relationship uh, was was one of the great, great motivators of, of analyzing your place in the community or getting in touch with all these emotions. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think so because I think my dad is such a complicated, um, you know, everybody's complicated. Yeah. But my dad is, he's such a distinct, you know, complicated person that I think that if I had attempted to fictionalize him, it it would have been difficult. Like he would have been a hard character for the, for the reader to boot you know, to believe in, right? Yeah. Um, because he is so singular. So, you know, for me, the, the place to write about him, um, you know, was definitely, that place was creative nonfiction. Um, and he, you know, my dad, you know, the, he's, he, there's a lot of contradictions in, in who he is, you know, because on one hand, he, you know, in a way, he lived his life in a way that, that really did undermine the ideas of family and the ideas of community. But then, the philosophies that he believed in and, and in, in some other ways say like his you know in the teaching kung fu um and then also in the yes that's you know right. so the outreach that he did in the com- in the community so in, in those ways he was really contributing to this idea of of, of community um so, i kept waiting for you to pick up another check <laughs> I was like, she's gonna become like the big like kung fu master or something. I did when, when I was younger. I, you know, my dad had nunchucks everywhere, and so we would play with them. But I never became proficient. You know, there's a weapon that I never trained with. Although when he was teaching us, um, I did. I trained. We trained. You know, everybody had to train with the staff, and then I also trained with the sword. My brother would tra- train with the staff, and he learned sword forms. He also l- learned the fan. Like my dad taught him, taught him, you know, to fight with the fan. So. Um, 
So yeah, so <laughs> we did some of that, but um, yeah. I've lost most of it, unfortunately. Well, I mean, I, this is very interesting because uh, I want to get into this instant late in the book where you describe being bullied mm-hmm. by racist kids. Uh, there's one moment after they cracked some really terrible quip about lynching you where you say, you ain't going to do nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these kids... They just dissemble. Mm-hmm. They just disappear. Uh, they have nothing to say after that. Uh, and it's this fascinating moment, particularly when we also are looking at this other incident with this kid, Topher, mm-hmm. who uh, who is just completely uh, verbally pulverizing you. Mm-hmm. And the teacher's just standing there not willing to acknowledge the racist language. Uh, you write about how the kids, some of them who were your friends, mm-hmm. I mean, they never took up for me for black people when I was in the room. Mm-hmm. And throughout this book, you don't let yourself off the hook. I mean, you write about how you were scared to walk through certain neighborhoods. You write about how your your little brother, two years younger, had more courage in, in a certain situation. And so when we're talking about this notion of self-defense, I have to ask you, Jasmine, what do you think it was that caused you to not only stand up to these kids, but also do something that even the other black kids in the school couldn't do. I mean, you know, I mean, that's that's something that was extraordinarily rare. What do you, where do you, th- and especially because, you know, you're not exactly the most extroverted person in the mm-hmm. world. So, yeah. you know, what, what, what do you think it was that, that caused you to really get these kids rightfully mm-hmm. off of your back? I don't really know. I mean, because, especially, you know, because before then and even afterwards, I wasn't very good at taking up for myself, you know, I, and I think part of that was informed by the fact that, um, you know, that I really low self-esteem, um, you know, because I, you know, I feel like the, the, the world and then also, you know, what I saw in my community had sort of taught me, you know, the wrong things about what it meant to be, you know, black and poor and a, and a woman in the South. And so I didn't, I had, I had awful self-esteem. Um, but I don't know, there was something about that moment Maybe because it was, you know, they were so overt, you know, and there were so many of them. You know, it was a pretty large group. I mean, you know, six, seven boys, you know, and they were and they were so much older than I was. You know, I was really young when that happened. I was in seventh or eighth grade and they were, you know, they were upperclassmen. And so I. um, So they were much taller. Yeah, they were much much taller than I was. And um, were they pretty muscular and all that, too? Some of them were. And so it was, you know, I think that I that it was such it was a moment that was where I was so clearly outnumbered, you know, overpowered, that maybe, you know, that, that maybe it was, you know, in, it was partly, like, motivated by instinct, right? The, you know, the fight or flight. And for once, my response wasn't just to, you know, leave or, like, passively endure it, but it was to actually fight. Um, so, yeah, so I think it was, a lot of it was driven by instinct, and so that I just, you know, just came out and, and, and just sort of said it. You know, you ain't gonna do nothing to me. You know, that's, it's not, it's not going down like that. <laughs> like that. Um. I, why do you think these instincts could only come out during certain moments? I mean, you know, it's, it, it you've, you've clearly had a fairly remarkable life of getting out of this situation, but what do you think it was that just encourage those instincts to mm-hmm. come out at the right moments because mm-hmm. of course they came out the most damaging moments yes. as well you yes know? well i think you know maybe um maybe the 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 situation was so um you know it was it was so you know i, I said like in that moment the odds were really against me like i was clearly overpowered clearly outnumbered and and then my response you know was to fight in that moment and then it also makes me think about you know when i was attacked by that pit bull right yeah. I mean, clearly you know the the pit the dog is 
very much, you know, like stronger than me, has more weapons than I have, you know, like it would be would have been very easy for me to um, to have come out worse in that situation than I did. But in that moment, I chose to fight. And I think that or it's not that I chose to fight, that that was the my instinctual response, right, that I fought in both of those instances. And I think, you know, maybe in, in certain situations like that, like the the you know, that um, that that they're the kind of situations that are so um, severe that I that you know that the part of me you know that that had that had the problem with low self-esteem right of course is the part that overthunk everything and that overprocessed everything right so then here in these moments there's no opportunity to think you know all I could do is react and um, you know and in those in the and then so my reaction in those moments was to you know, what's the fight? So maybe that's why, right? These are these moments where I can't, you know, the part of me that has low self-esteem can't think about it and can't process that moment in that way. So, you know, so then I just react without thinking and that's what happens. There is something interesting in that pit bullets that there's a sentence you write where you say, the long scar in my head feels like a thin plastic cocktail straw and like all war wounds, it itches. Uh, and in light of how you went through this period of drinking, uh, I'm wondering how long it took for you to make this connection between, you know, surviving a war and with the cocktail straw mm-hmm. turning to drink in this effort to cope, in this effort to, you know, deal with the pain and to to combat this mm-hmm. low self-esteem. Yeah. It took me a long time, you know. I don't think that I really um, that I began that I began to realize. Um, the way that I, you know, that I was turning to alcohol, you know, in order to deal with with what I'd been through. Probably, I began to realize that while I was at Michigan, you know, when I was in New York and and I was, um, you know, doing the drinking that I was doing when I said I was buying bottles of rum and basically just drinking them straight with a little bit of sugar. I didn't realize it then. And I think that's because I, you know, that was from 2000, 2003, so I was in the throes of it. But it wasn't until probably around 2006 um, that I, because I would, I began to drink alone. And that's when I really, that's when I, you know, it, it suddenly hit me, you know, like what I was, because I would drink alone and then I would become very depressed, you know, and I would, um, and very moody and, and, and I would act out. And see, before, whenever I'd done that sort of drinking, I had roommates, I lived with other people, um, we were, you know, out in social situations, so I didn't really think about it. But, uh, but there was something about beginning to drink alone that made me suddenly begin to draw those conclusions, right, between what I'd gone through and how I was responding to it and how I was basically self-medicating with alcohol. It's fascinating to me that you don't really get into the beginning of your writing in this memoir. It comes from the exact same impulses as this kind of self-medicating, as this drinking, as this effort to combat terror, fear, low self-esteem. And, and I'm wondering um, if it's even possible for you to even write about the beginning of how writing kind of brought you out of this and, and allowed you to, to really manage these emotions uh, more effectively. Um, I don't, you know, I, re- I, I think, huh... I didn't, I don't know why I didn't really address, you know, speak more about it in the book or write more about that in the book. I, um, I, yeah, I don't really know. I mean, I, um, I, I've, 
spoken about it before like when I you know I, I sometimes speak to you know at different universities and 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 I have a, a, a speech that I usually give where I actually talk about you know yeah. what the, you know how I came to writing and how um, how committing to writing for me was really a response to the grief that I felt when I lost my brother yes. um, but, but it's compartmentalized I think mm-hmm, yeah. which I find really interesting yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't, I, yeah, I don't really know why I didn't address it more in the book. Maybe because I was sort of afraid of, um, of, of taking the folk of, you know, of shifting that, that focus maybe away from the young men. And, and maybe I, I, um, you know, I was sort of nervous about whether or not I could, I could write about it, um, and still, uh, and, st- and still, I don't know, like sustain maybe the pace and the tension in the na- in in the narrative in the memoir. So maybe that's what was going on. I don't. You had your own problem of double consciousness. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. that's that's interesting. I, I do want to get into uh, the way that you describe the land mm-hmm. of the community, which is extremely fascinating. You point out that the parks, the public parks are going to be designated for the graveyards mm-hmm. in the future. This is going to be the burial site for people who will die in the future. And you openly begin to wonder, well, is it possible to stave off this transformation from the life of the playground to the death of the grave? You write, the grief we bear along with all the other burdens of our lives, all our other losses, sinks us until we find ourselves in a red, sandy grave. Yet, near the end of the book, when you're talking about your brother... Uh, you are very candid about grief having this limitless lifespan. Um, so how do you deal with grief when you know that you're also trying to work away at that buffer that's going to turn the playground into the graves? I mean, you have to champion life. You have to fend off these forces, both societal and behavioral, that are, that are trying to deaden mm-hmm. all this wonder that's around you. So, so you know, how, how how do you how does grief how do you how do you think about grief when you ha- you know very you're very well aware of what's going to happen? Well, I guess that you know that that what I um, you know the way that I that I think about it is that I I mean the grief is a fact that's something that I can't change that's something that that is here and that um, you know and that I have to live with every day. But I but I think what I'm attempting to 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 do is is to use that grief, um, use that grief to uh, to really fuel this um, this endeavor, right? The writing of the book, and then also the conversations that I, that I have around the book with different people, so that hopefully in like having these conversations and um, and talking about all these pressures, you know, the the the, the, the grief and the in the sense of, um, you know, of, of fear and a failure, right, that, that sort of permeates life, you know, for so many um, of, the, of the people, you know, in my community, that talking about these things is the first step to admitting that there is this problem, you know, and that, yes, we are all living with this grief, and yes, we are living, you know, trying to survive these unbearable pressures, but, but you know, if, I'm hoping that if we talk about them, you know, and, and, and bring them out into the open, um, that um, and admit, you know, that there is a problem and that they, 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 they do exist, that then we can begin to to be more conscious, I guess, about about our lives, about the actions that we take, how we react to, you know, to these larger pressures, so that maybe we can begin to um, 
you know, to, 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 to change things, right? And to, um, you know, to think of concrete ways that we can change things. And I haven't gotten there yet. You know, whenever someone asks me, okay, so what can we do? My, my only answer so far is that, okay, first we just need to talk about it. You know, we, 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 we need to, you know, to enter this conversation, you know, that's, that, that's happening across the country where, you know, about race and about, you know, young black people dying um, and about, you know, poverty and, and socioeconomic inequality so that if we begin to talk about these things, you know, then maybe we can get to a point where we can come up with, like, concrete, you know, solution, workable solutions, I guess. I wonder if small biographies, piecemeal chapters of people who have needlessly lost their lives, why that almost seems to be the only way to discuss this problem these days. I mean, we don't want to look at the vast tapestry. Yeah. We don't want to look at the, the you know, all the moving parts. Mm-hmm. That is, and, and it gets, you know, it gets to be a bit of a headache mm-hmm. when you start to if you care at all, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it's going to bog you down. Yeah. I, I mean, right now, actually, we're talking right when the government's going to shut down. And what's really bizarre about this is that people are more concerned, not so much with, like, the fact that these food programs who are going to f- feed the poor are going to go out, not so much with the Library of Congress closing, not so much with, <laughs> you know, for example, military servicemen who are living day to day, not getting their paychecks. They're more worried about these baby pandas in the National Zoo. You know, I mean, what 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 do you think we can do to to get people on the level of baby pandas? You know what I mean? You know, I I think that 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 when I wrote the book, and and especially you know when I wrote each chapter about you know about the young men, you know their lives and their deaths, that that's something of what I was trying to affect, right? Because if if even just if even given a chapter, and some of those chapters are short, you know they're shorter. Um, if even if just if given if given a chapter, right? If I can make you know these young men as a, as authentically alive and complicated and unique as I can on the page, like if I can really develop their characters and and develop them well enough so that the reader, you know, when they encounter these young men, instead of these young men being statistics, they're actually human beings and actually people, and they can sympathize with them, then I will have accomplished something. Sure. You know, then 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 suddenly, you know the you know, the, the, the young man becomes the, the panda, yeah. right? I mean, because we care, we care about them. And so, so I, you know, I think that, that maybe that's part of it. I mean, because we encounter the numbers all the time, yeah. right? And I think it was David Simon that, that said something like that before, too, because I think he was being interviewed about The Wire, right? And he, the, I think the interview was asking him about the difference between, you know, the work that he'd done in journalism, right, as a writer, and then, and then the work that he was doing in The Writer. And he was saying that, you know, that there's power in the story, you know, versus, versus you know, he felt like when he was writing, you know, when he was a journalist, that, that he was telling, he was trying to communicate like, the same facts that he's trying to communicate in The Wire. But as a journalist, they just weren't, they weren't causing any sort of change. They weren't getting through. They weren't making people care, you know, in the way that they cared about the pandas. But yet, in, when he when he worked on the wire, he was able to reach a wider audience and to get that audience to care about the same kind of issues that he was concerned about when he was a journalist. So yeah. it, I think it really is in the in the power of of the story and writing. Even if you only have a little bit of space, just using that space as effectively as you can to make these to make these stories real. Sure. But don't you think there's a disconnect between, like, for example, Trayvon Martin, mm-hmm. which everybody is 
sympathetic to that yes. story. And I marched with a bunch of people yes. here in New York, and it was it was a marvelous at the time. But ultimately, this doesn't affect policy. It doesn't actually get things to change. And even with the people who cared about the wire, uh, inevitably we go into the same kind of corrupt governmental institutions. It seems to me that the only option is to either amp up the number of storytellers yes. to get people to care, or there needs to be some drastic change in the way the American mind thinks. And yes. I'm wondering, you know, do you have any ideas on this? I, don't, I mean, that's a really difficult question to answer, you know? I mean, I think I think that there should be more storytellers, and then I think that the stories that are out there, they need more volume, you know? I mean, I think that they, that, you know, that these stories need to be... Um, you know, that's what we need to be discussing instead of discussing, like, you know, the Kardashians. and yeah. You know what I'm saying? I like, agree. Like, that, that's the discussion that we need to be having. Those are the stories that we need to be invested in and the people that we need to be invested in. And, and, and we need to be not, not be so concerned with, you know, vapid celebrity culture, right? Because that doesn't get us anywhere. That doesn't, that doesn't foster any, any sort of large-scale, the kind of large-scale change that we need, right, in the American government with policymakers. Since you brought that up, I actually want to bring up the white rapper, who we know who it is, mm -hmm. that is mentioned in Men We Reaped. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to bring it up because it seems to me that you were commenting upon this present trend of appropriation of black culture by white artists mm -hmm. because you're dealing with friends who are saying, oh, he's so dreamy. But actually, uh, if you start to think about it, it falls into the same category. And lo and behold, a performer who I do not want to name <laughs> has, in fact, grabbed the headlines for the, exactly the same reason. Do you think this has something to do with the problem? I mean, that we're so concerned with the casual appropriation of, uh, of black culture by white that we can't actually... This kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about like how people don't want to have that full, deep-seated level of cultural engagement mm -hmm. that we need to really feel, yeah. you know? Yeah. What, what, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I think, um, I mean, I think you're right. I think that is part of what, of, of you know, of, of what's happening here, that we're, that, you know, that there's this sort of shying away from, um, from real, you know, engagement. And it's, you know, it's, 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 it's hard because it seems like often that it's easier for, um, you know, for and I and I feel like I've encountered this in the literary world that it's it's easier for someone, for say, you know, someone who is white to write about the same, you know, yes. the same characters, the same circumstances that a black writer will write about, but then they they will receive, you know, they'll they'll be more acclaimed, there'll be more publicity, you know, there's much more of a... They get a privileged pass. Yes, exactly, that, um, you know, that, write, that writers of color or artists of color don't, and that's problematic. I don't know how to go, I don't even, I wouldn't even begin to know how to, um, you know, how, how to reverse that trend so there is a real cultural in, in, engagement. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I wish I did. I, I mean, mean but, that, but then there, there's also this issue of the other having to, you know, soften itself yes. for white consumption, yes. which also pisses me off yes. quite a bit. <laughs> it's like, yes. you know, we turn to fiction for other perspectives. Yes. And then you have the roadblock of, well, it's the characters aren't likable. Yeah, or or exactly. you have, like, you know, very uh, timid Goodreads mm -hmm. reviews, yes. which influence the conversation. I mean, you know, but do you think, though, that literature is. Uh, flexible enough, elastic enough to really kind of get these stories out there. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think I have a sense that things are changing with like Mitchell Jackson, mm -hmm. uh, Chiese, a uh, number of wonderful books that are coming out in 2014. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. what, what do you think? I, um, I hope so. I think so. I mean, I, I feel like at this moment that I'm seeing 
that I'm seeing that trend, right? That, there, that you know, before I felt like, um, you know, there was this, there was this uh, response to writers of color where there was only sort of one allowed, you know? Like there was this one, only one person was allowed to, um, you know, to, 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 to get, you know, attention and to, to, to garner, to, you know, to, uh, to generate discussion and to, you know, and to get some kind of acclaim. And I, but I feel like, I hope, that what I'm seeing now is that, is that there is that, um, is that, is that that's not the case anymore, you know, and, and that, um, and and that you know a multiplicity of stories and, and of voices is, um, you know, that they're being ushered into, you know, into the literary realm and and, and, and into the conversation, and that makes me really excited. Um, yeah, that makes me really excited, and I really I hope I'm not being like super optimistic right now, and I hope that it really is the case because. You know, because because that you know that's what we that's what we need. One last question, because I don't have to go. Since you heard so many of these deaths by telephone, I mean, what is your relationship with the telephone right I, now? I hate the telephone. You know, I my my family complains all the time. My friends complain all the time because they tell me you shouldn't even have a phone. You never answer the phone. Um, so I do. I avoid my telephone often. I purposefully neglect it um, because I you know I just hate. And and then also you know I'll. Someone will be calling me with good news, and they say, "I have something to tell you." And immediately, I think, "It's oh, going to be yeah, terrible." Yeah, it's going to be awful. Like, what, what, what's happened now? You know, and uh, that's automatically the way that my thoughts, you know, turn. So, um, so yeah, I have, I have a tortured relationship with the telephone. I still dislike the telephone. Do you think that level of communication is related to what we're talking about in terms of cultural engagement, in terms of stories getting out there? I mean. Do we need to find the bravery to pick up the telephone or to dive further into culture? Uh, I, know, I, I, we yes. all have our weak spots. I yeah, suppose. yeah, they, we we all do. So yeah, so maybe I mean maybe <laughs> I think you know yes I think maybe I should you know be braver and be able to uh, you know to uh, to come to terms with what you know with my fears and to, to face them. Right? Bra- bravery on several. Points. Yes, yes. Well, I mean you've got a few. Of course. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, Jasmine. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to chat with you again. I hope to talk with you soon. Yeah, yeah, All right. definitely. Great, thanks. Bye. Okay. Yeah. I wrote a poem the other day. The punchline is, uh, what the fuck we gonna do now? Because you got to ask yourself that. It's always a situation you get yourself in. You be like, damn, what the fuck I'm gonna do now? When the world turns upside down on my head and I can't sleep no longer, eat no longer unless it's a full course meal, I'm tired of boiling water to cook noodles that caught the quarter. What about steak and veal? I like to pay all my bills. Know I'm the Lord, but struggle I feel.